it's interesting that this is nominally a film about not stars or about unstars mm-hmm. and about reorienting the way we talk about the sport, but it's centered around both the individual, mm-hmm. Billy Bean, and it's featuring the biggest movie star in the world. Because eventually it's just about the big individual and the big win. listening to the Brightwall Darkroom podcast, where we belly up with critics, artists, and our magazine's contributors to speak from the heart about film. I'm Veronica Fitzpatrick. And I'm Chad Perman. Chad, how are you? Veronica, I am pretty okay. How are you? I'm great. Happy belated birthday. Oh, thank you very much. Tell me what you did for your birthday. Well, I had a, a birthday weekend more than a birthday day, so uh, it was good. As you should. Yes, I went to... Anyone talks to me for more than a few minutes knows one of my favorite places on earth is Scarecrow Video mm-hmm. in Seattle, uh, where I'd worked 20 some years ago and uh, had not been back there probably about a year before the pandemic, so probably about four years. And the wonderful thing about Scarecrow Video is that it doesn't change at all in terms of how it looks. So it looked the same, it smelled the same, you know, got all the, all the nostalgia vibes. It's one of the few video stores where people will work for 20 or 30 years and... Uh, mm. So I got to see some old people and met up with uh, Brianna Ashby, the original illustrator of the first 50 issues of Bright Wall Dark Room and, and still an occasional illustrator for us now, which is always a treat. I don't think she listens to this, but if so, hi, Brianna. Oh, friend of the pod. Yeah, very big friend of the pod. And then uh, also with her friend, Sean Nelson, who is the uh, musician of Harvey Danger Guy and also a writer for many years and has written for us. And cool. I got to hang out with them. And, Went to Taste of India on Roosevelt there in the U District and bemoaned how we were all getting so old. So yeah, it was a good it was a good reflective thing to do, but also a lot of fun. And then Sunday, my actual birthday was just a low key day with uh, with my family, which is pretty much how I prefer almost anything. So not a lot going on on purpose and uh, just kind of hanging out and spending a good time with them. And uh, yeah, it was good. Pretty much see a whole bunch of people I loved in a, in one weekend, and that's in my opinion the best way you can spend your time. So beautiful. You said you're doing great. What's great? I'm doing great. Did I? Yeah, I'm like, did I say that? Um, you know, it feels like the depths of winter. I feel like I'm actually spiraling oh, just no. from boredom and cold. But oh, so cold here. You know, it's an, an exciting time. The end of February, finally. March is, I guess, marginally better. So they say. I'm <laughs> looking forward to visiting New York next week. Ooh. The first time in a couple months. Oh, I was going to say, I feel like you do that Yeah, quite a lot. Well, I used to, but I haven't been as much lately, but I'm I'm really excited to go next week. And in the meantime, I hosted one Fran Hoffner here in Providence, Rhode Island a couple weekends ago, which was great. And so was actually the first time I saw yes. at her behest the movie that we're talking about this evening. She informed me of such. Yeah, we had a couple pretty fun double features inadvertently, and this was one of them, the theme being sports. Which you've been pushing for an issue on for so long. I know. I mean, it's nice to be heard, (laughs) finally. Yes. I actually think you did some of the best sports writing we had uh, in your um, Color of Money piece. Thanks. That intro or that, I don't know, the first few uh, paragraphs is just about 
some of your issues with sports and also yeah. it was just really well done. I, I, yeah. The feminist phenomenology of sucking at sports. <laughs> it was a very academic explanation for some things, but I love that kind of stuff. Yeah. It was great and it was personable and I love it. Thanks, buddy. And we're, we're here to help help with any sports we can. <laughs> well, I do love baseball. It's probably hey, my favorite sport to spectate, like by a lot. That's fascinating. Yeah. Because it is something that I have not probably watched the game start to finish in, sorry, Frank, uh, many years. Well, I guess I mean more like live, no? Oh, yeah, like, live. I mean, yeah. I don't really watch any um, sports like on television except for the Oscars. But in terms of live sports, baseball's it. Okay. Who's Frank? <laughs> yeah. I was going to say we're trying to get him to laugh audibly, but he's, he's pretty good. <laughs> Is Frank in the room with us, Dad? <laughs> yeah. So, hey, uh, we'll, we'll make the intro quick because he's a returning favorite. Our guest this month is the formidable Frank Felici. Uh, he loves Ishtar. <laughs> now, yes, Frank was on our Ishtar podcast. I guess uh, an off-the-cuff intro would be he's, he's one of the most pleasant people to interact with in any kind of written text-based thing. And the very few times I, I get to do something like this where we get to actually talk in real time, it's not one of those things where the, the writing is a, is a trick that someone puts hours into. That's just how their brain works and they, they can have it come right out of their mouth. Mm. So big admirer of him and, and the faces he's making right now to try to get out of the spotlight. But uh, <laughs> Frank's one of my favorite writers, uh, one of my favorite people to correspond with. And there's not a huge amount of people in the film world that are gaga over a particular sport. Mm. Talks about baseball in fascinating ways, uh, loves baseball to death, is a fan of the Yankees, which I try so hard not to hold against him as a Mariners fan. I mean, it's not really a, a rivalry if one team never wins, right? Anyway, welcome, Frank. It's great to be here. Hello, Chad. Hello, Veronica. Yes. This is the best. So good to have you. Welcome home. It's good. To yes, welcome home. <laughs> I feel like a, I feel like one of the players has just been traded and is like, oh, you're going back to the Bright Wall Dark Room podcast. Yep. Well, all right. Pack your bags. You're on the pod. Okay. <laughs> I got to go where? Cleveland? All right. <laughs> it's, it's sincerely great to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, what could be better than talking about movies and, and baseball for a little bit, right? Movies and baseball. The same thing. The same thing. I'm guessing. Question. <laughs> to be determined. You like to say lots of things are movies. So is baseball a movie? I, I thought that was your thing. You decide if things are movies. Or oh, no, no. But I'm when you write, like, uh, oh, yeah, sure. you, you say, like, this is a movie that, uh, I don't know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do that. Yeah. yeah. Baseball is a movie. And in this essay, I will. Yeah. Yeah. I can judge whether Moneyball's a movie, but I, <laughs> you can judge if the actual sport is a movie. Right, right, right. And I'll just, spoiler alert, Moneyball is a movie, in my opinion. Yeah. You can skip to the next episode right now. Yeah. Maybe I'll introduce the film. <laughs> This is surprisingly, we're all sober, so I, I don't know. It's an assumption, but you are right. You are right. <laughs> um, you've already said it, but we are talking about Moneyball, which when we did this, this is sort of like the royal editorial we, but when the Brightwall Twitter account asked readers, friends, question mark, followers. Fellow travelers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> about the best sports movies, I think it was. Moneyball was one of the more popular responses. It came up a ton. I was uh, I was pretty surprised. Yeah, which it's never really been on my radar. The reason it came up for me with Fran is because we were talking about whether Brad Pitt is good or not. And I came down sort of in the not camp. Mm. Yep. Come at me. And she was like, no, no, I think, you know, a couple things. Thelma and Louise. And I was like, oh, I didn't even know that that could count because <laughs> yes, 
good in Thelma and Louise, but sort of like an initial jaunt and also like just a Magic Mike-esque performance. But then Moneyball, and I was like, all right, let's see how this goes. So Moneyball, yes. colon. Based on the 2003 nonfiction book by Michael Lewis, Moneyball looks at the turn within baseball scouting and analysis. And I'm generalizing. I doubt anyone will come for me in this about this synopsis, but I'll do my caveat here. The turn from a sometimes intuitive old school of talent assessment and recruiting to a newer school of prioritizing on-base percentage and batting productivity. It's basically, as I see it, numbers versus romance, and the film uses these terms too. We find general manager Billy Bean, played by producer Brad Pitt, tasked with assembling a successful team for the Oakland A's in 2002, which he does with the help of fully fictionalized assistant Peter Brand, played by Jonah Hill. This is a movie once intended for Steven Soderbergh that's ultimately directed by Bennett Miller, with almost no women in it, a good Spike Jones cameo, Philip Seymour Hoffman doing maybe the least he's ever been trusted to do in a movie, pre-Guardians Chris Pratt hitting a literally game-changing home run, and lots in the way of monitors, commentary, and numbers. So just something fun for everyone, I think. Yeah. Where do we dive in there? Frank, you must spin the wheel. <laughs> where, do, where, do, where do we start with Moneyball? Frank, what's this movie about? <laughs> I don't think it's about baseball. Agreed. I don't know what it is about, but I don't think it's about baseball as a starter. When did you first see it? It kind of hits a bunch of weird blind spots for me because in 2011, I was too young to be watching movies. I was 21. <laughs> well, like, I saw it because it was like up for awards, right? Like, <laughs> okay. So it wasn't like on my radar. I was like, oh, it's going to be good. It was just in the ether. Mm-hmm. But I also wasn't watching baseball again yet. I came to that after undergrad. Oh. So that was still still coming. Mm. And it's about a period, 2001, that I was too young to really be conscious of, mm-hmm. but also therefore. So to go back to it is a sort of a bunch of time slides through like crooked hula hoops that doesn't quite mm-hmm. work. But it looks like a movie from 2011 in a lot of ways. It does, yeah. Like what kind of ways? Oh, visually, uh, <laughs> for sure. The, the colors, the lack thereof. Kind of washed mm-hmm. out. It's just so slick. Mm. It's the, like these these 2010s movies, and they still make them, sure, but like it's The Fighter and it's mm. The King's Speech and it's Good callback, yeah. The Wrestler and it's these movies about like storied men mm-hmm. who have to rise to odds <laughs> and sort of mm-hmm. address some great woe. Yeah, maybe that's part of like, there, it's such a time capsule of how movies were for a certain time. Yeah. Uh, I don't think continue to be probably, but does that seem right? Does that seem like what it is to you guys? <laughs> Yeah, it seems like an airplane movie to me. Yeah, that's, yeah. In terms of what you were just saying, like the kind of little subgenre that you're placing it in, mm-hmm. like the kind of movie that probably wants you to cry at some point, but is going to really conceal its motivations. Mm-hmm. And I did cry both times watching it. Really? I just rewatched it this morning. That last scene gets you. Um, the, it's trying really hard to get you. Which one is the last scene that you're talking about? When it focuses literally up on his eyes while he's listening to his daughter's song and starting to cry. Oh, no. Okay. No. I did not have that kind of relationship with my father, so I don't feel anything about the daughter, except for I do feel like a tremendous relief and kind of admiration toward the film that there is nothing wrong with his relationship with his daughter at all. It's just this kind of like nice, non-melodramatic relationship that is framed by the fact that he has this ex-wife played by Robin Wright in like (laughs) one scene plus a voiceover. But there isn't, you know, like custody issues. 
She's not. I mean, just coming off of seeing Sadie Sink in The Whale, oh. I was particularly <laughs> like thrilled to see this very charming young actress just play it right down the middle. <laughs> yeah. And it was interesting, too, because I noticed more so this time. He makes mention a couple of times of the fact that he's not around her as much as he'd like to be. But sure. the amount of spaces they fill in the movie with things about like his office is littered with these little pictures of them everywhere, like way more mm -hmm. so than like, I mean, he's got the dad mug in one scene. That was an obvious one. But yeah, it's just really clear that like there's a lot of love there and probably a lot of pain uh, around the fact that he can't see her as much as he wants, not just because of the job, but because of the, the divorce. And then the, the wonderful, perfectly played uh, cameo by Spike Jones is like the new dad who's like, hey, we can talk about the cell phones. And he's like, yeah, her mom and I will be discussing that. So, but yeah, I just feel like, uh, in general, that Brad Pitt's character, and uh, it's been so long since I read the book, I, I don't know how much of this is accurate, was just carrying around a ton of sadness throughout like the whole movie, hmm. and also just never portraying it. I mean, and, and trying to kind of uh, project it out or, or overcome it through through com competition, which a lot of men channel a lot of things in. So, but it, yeah, I do feel like he he hardly ever shows his actual emotions, and, and really, really, really fast. So I'm just fascinated characterologically, psychologically, by the Billy Bean as interpreted by Brad Pitt. So. Hmm. It's giving him a lot of credit. I don't, uh, for complexity or something, or depth maybe. I don't oh, know. I don't think it was necessarily Brad Pitt doing it. I think it was through like the direction and some of the decisions. Some, yeah. I mean, there's times when Brad Pitt was acting, but he is not often called on to emote in any way. And also I think that he does really good at not having to emote in any way while still making you feel like you're watching a movie that's moving forward in time with a plot. Yeah, I mean, a guy that everybody who works with him hates him, and he seems like a better dad than a manager in a way, and ultimately gets offered like an enormous promotion for implementing a system that somebody else teaches him and, you know, occasionally throws a chair into the hallway. I don't know. <laughs> he, he throws a lot of stuff, yeah, a lot of throwing. Yeah, some tortured masculinity stuff going on for sure. I'm more convinced by this aspect of the film with his um, the fact that he was scouted, that he gave up a full scholarship to Stanford to play professionally at such a young age and then ultimately doesn't have it. Yeah. And especially when we first meet him, Contra, these like other scouts, many of whom are played by like playing himself yeah. type of situation as opposed to actors with Bennett Miller, like very correctly, I think, and insightfully noticing that it's their faces that kind of like make the scene Absolutely, yeah. um, and their conviction as kind of playing out in the in the expressivity of their faces in that moment when they're like, oh, I like this college player's face or he's got a baseball body <laughs> yeah. or something it almost feels like a model in casting mm. or some kind of um macho necromancy like how do we tell that he's like the right type of guy or something and especially when they're talking about whether one of the players has like a hot enough girlfriend to constitute yeah. like the kind of confidence that's required so i think all that stuff playing against the flashbacks that reveal that he had the right kind of face, he had the baseball body, um, all of this potential that ultimately didn't really, quote unquote, go anywhere. I mean, I, th I think he ends up just fine. But, you know, the way that the film sort of considers failure when you focus on one thing for basically your whole life, I do find that pretty affecting. Mm. I mean, we've been talking about like what it's like to watch this movie now and the kind of 2011 of it all versus mm -hmm. the 2023 of revisiting it and i think one thing that is really impossible not to think about is the allegations against brad pitt and just sort of how his reputation has spiraled 
in the past several years and then seeing this character failing to connect and doing all this like masculine violence mm -hmm. that has been sort of floating around his star persona in mm -hmm. the media these many years. Like, I don't know. It's just, I know I was saying that I don't feel charmed, not even just by the Billy Bean character, but by Brad Pitt as a performer and haven't. But that's definitely a big piece of it for me. It's just like a failure to sort of not only connect with a performance like that, but a reluctance to endorse a performance like that, I think. Mm -hmm. well, part of the persona is that things roll off him. Yes. It's almost vulgar to like collapse the allegations onto this star persona, but the star mm -hmm. persona is what gets used in the sort of fallout sure. of these allegations. And that's, mm -hmm. he is able to, and his PR team is able to like fall back on this, like he has his natural wine and that, what was it? The Vanity Fair piece. Yeah. Oh yeah. I forgot about that piece. Like all those pictures of him on the beach or whatever. It's not comfortable yeah. it's it's a little laundering it feels quite laundering and it seems to be working i know yeah i'm not looking forward to another award ceremony where everyone's making jokes about having a crush on brad pitt i'll say that mm -hmm. um it feels really in poor taste at mm -hmm. the very least at the very least yeah 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 i don't have the timeline on this but i feel like this movie exists somewhere between the public consciousness of billy bean as this like emissary of major league baseball like right mm -hmm. he people knew him as the money ball guy because the a's were this mm -hmm. sort of like cross-cultural storyline but it was before he was billy bean like all-star gm mm -hmm. in i think a lot of people's minds and like an openly gay sort of athlete in a but like does not have that mm. so people didn't know a lot about him is that does that feel right chad to your sort of like sense of the timeline i mean i wasn't following super closely at that time in terms of the real life stuff and this is an interesting thing too uh in terms of watching it is i had a feeling watching it today which was very similar to what i had when i saw it in the theaters which was i know this all happened i know i was reading the sports papers at that time i couldn't remember both of these times if they actually won that 20th game or not hmm. I mean, I remember that they didn't, you know, win at the end, like, and they didn't go to the World Series that year because they're in the same division as the Mariners. So these are a team that I'm really familiar with reading about, like, mm -hmm. in the asides of things. So I'm, I follow them in relation to the Mariners. Uh, and then I didn't follow the Mariners for many years because it's just a depressing thing to do. Mm -hmm. So I have this kind of general image of him as being very successful, being the Moneyball guy. I definitely was, you know, I'm old enough to remember him being a player. That whose baseball card I had and mostly mm. liked it because his name was, I like Billy Bean. That sounds like a baseball player. <laughs> Looks like a baseball player. And, uh, and also just never really did anything. He was, I loved guys like that. Uh, I didn't know he was supposed to be a star, mm. um, but like the, I don't know how old this gets, but like the Steve Saxes of the world or the, you know, Spike Owens or whatever, just people who like never are huge stars, but they're, they're guys to fans are beloved. And I'm sure, yeah, somewhere out there right now they are, but you know, they're guys that are working a car dealership, you know, cashing in off of the, the name that they had as a baseball player 30 mm -hmm. years ago. And uh, yeah, probably living regular dude lives. And I just, I really like <laughs> the workman like uh, nature of those guys. Well, no, this idea of like Billy Bean as a star. And, and I think it's interesting that this is nominally a film about not stars or about unstars mm -hmm. and about reorienting yeah. the way we talk about the sport. But it's centered around both the individual, Billy Bean, mm -hmm. and it's featuring the biggest movie star in the world. Yeah. Like, I think Brad Pitt's just doing the Brad Pitt performance. Yeah, that was my sense. I'm not overly charmed by a lot of it, honestly. Maybe that's just an, a, a present day exhaustion being projected onto 2011, but like... Well, but like, imagine 
the same character, but with another actor playing it and how almost insufferable it would have been. Mm-hmm. I, I do think Brad Pitt's doing a lot of work of getting you to stay on board-ish, maybe not for Veronica, with the character. Because, yeah, if, if you put a lot of how he was portrayed into somebody else, you know, it, just, it I feel like it wouldn't work as well. Jeremy Strong, something like that. Well, if it had been somebody without gravitas, it would have been more interesting, I think, only because Billy Bean isn't Brad Pitt, and he doesn't have Brad Pitt's presence in negotiating, or maybe he does. I don't mean to assume that Billy Bean's listening. Uh, Hi, Billy. (laughs) You do have to pay players eventually. They're laborers. It wasn't up to him. He he wanted to pay them more. He was not allowed to. Sure, 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 sure. Well, John Fisher, uh, current owner of the Oakland A's, if you're listening, uh, you do have to pay your players. (laughs) Yeah, and I think that that, like the Soderbergh pitch was really interesting, right? Veronica, didn't you think? Yeah. That movie would have been great. It would have been a different way of seeing baseball as opposed Mm -hmm. to what I think ultimately amounts to a conservative baseball film that goes down easily. Mm -hmm. Because eventually it's just about the big individual and the big win. Mm -hmm. Even if it doesn't happen, it's about those things. And it's about the struggle to get those things. Exactly. I think that's so right about the movie and is happening in a parallel way to the fact that the film is confused, I think, about whether baseball is just fertile for these kind of like romantic narratives Mm. about underdogs and timing and surpassing what seems like your potential or your projected successes or whatever it is. And then just like straight up metrics and focusing on things that aren't really that fun to think about or watch. Mm -hmm. And the fact that that just produces enough runs that you will not lose. Mm -hmm. And I think it doesn't feel totally certain whether this is a movie about winning or not losing Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in that way you know like it seems like it's enthralled by the win and that feels true from like the very opening he has that line and they really specifically almost paraphrasing what you said there where he said i hate i hate losing more than i hate not winning even there's some 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 of that effect Mm -hmm. where he's driven so strongly by like losing eats him alive which is something that uh, almost any competitive person can identify with but um it just, I mean, it's all consuming. And that's all, what's always fascinating to me about athletes are the kinds that are there for the money, there for the attention, there for the whatever. I mean, he, some of it I'm sure was the director, but some of it is just, it also seems to fit with what Billy Bean at the time was my memories of him. The moments that normally would be huge celebratory m- moments in a typical sports movie, um, should say our, our theme this month is sports, by the way. That's why we're talking about this. So I thought a lot about sports movies and they you know, they follow some pretty predictable tropes and things and when they do them right, they they work really well and I I get all the emotions from them, but they're not really doing anything like what this movie does in terms of there's no big anything like somehow making a narrative arc and triumphant moment 2 thirds of the way through the movie when the team sets a record that probably most people can't even tell you that they set, including me apparently, until <laughs> I watch the movie every 10 years. It's not, there's no big game. There's no, I mean, that was just a game. There's 162 baseball games in a season. They managed to win 20 for the first time in the history of baseball. And this guy hit a home run, so it's kind of a cool way to win a game. But it was just like a Wednesday. You know, it wasn't like, it wasn't a huge deal to my recollection of it anyway. But to build a whole movie around that, to to build it around, he, he didn't, they didn't win the championship. They actually finished the exact same way in the exact same amount of games lost in the playoffs as they did the year before doing it with the Stars. And then that kind of sad coda of, oh, yeah, another team took this uh, same formula and won the World Series a couple of years later. But there's no big moment. I mean, there's not big moments. And the, and the one time he actually shows up at the stadium, you know, which can't have been real, that he starts to jinx them when they're up 11 to nothing. And hmm. 
but just all of his stuff, he watches the games by himself. There, there's no there's no moment of him celebrating. The the best thing that you get from it is the phone call from his ex wife to say, "Hey, you did good." <laughs> the daughter saying at the end, "You know, you're you know you're a good dad." Him and Jonah, you know Hill, which we haven't even talked about Jonah Hill. This was a moment for him. I remember very very clearly, like, "Oh my god," you know. Now it's kind of common knowledge that he can act, but that was not known at that time. So. I don't think was it. He can act. <laughs> I think he I think he does great in this movie and I think that uh you know like th- this particular type of character like the obviously the Wolf of Wall Street so like, mm. when, when he gets paired with directors that know how to use what he can do how about that if you want to call that acting I'm just being persnickety <laughs> Jonah Hill okay. as a Yale graduate who's an economist is a bit of a barrier of entry for me <laughs> yeah well they had to literally change the character's name yeah the guy's like you can't you can't this is not me take take my name off of this movie right you're Peter Brand now. <laughs> I am curious how both of you feel about this movie as a sports film. Like, do you think it's typical of what sports films do or are particularly good at? Or is it kind of a vanguard? I mean, I'm sort of interested in the fact that it's one of the like main answers that came up in this kind of informal Twitter poll yeah. as a sports film that people really remember well or are fond of. But it doesn't seem to me kind of along the lines of what you were just saying, Chad, that representative of what sports films typically are beloved for doing yeah i would i would defer to frank since i just talked for a long time but my one line would be that it feels like a like an emo version of a sports movie <laughs> let's put a pin in that yeah that's, let, i'd like to come back to that <laughs> me too so i wonder if i were to argue that it is a typical sports film that instead of it being centered around the big win and then not having that big game moment the big moment is him deciding to take the meaning that he gets from the game, mm-hmm. right? He has this this sort of crisis of like, do I leave or do I stay? And in that moment, he decides to stay because he has given himself meaning. He has taken his life and made meaning from it. And I think that's what sports movies normally do. They show us these models for meaning making. Mm-hmm. And when we watch Dennis Leary or Kevin Costner experience these mm-hmm. things, we're able to then project those onto our non-sports lives and make meaning. Mm-hmm. And so Moneyball's yeah. desire to have their cake and not be a sports movie and not show the moment, but also project that meaning making onto the narrative, mm-hmm. I think is what ultimately makes it feel to me like just like a field of dreams or just like a league of their own or just like any number of these very sort of mm-hmm. typified and lovable, but typical sports movies. Yeah, I just am left with a much different vibe from it than those mm-hmm. those movies, which I also love that you just referenced. I mean, it'd be hard to find a person that, that doesn't have some kind of feelings or connection to the field of dreams after seeing it. But um, the arc of it feels different to me. Mm-hmm. The lack of an arc or the the arc maybe of, hey, I, I mean, I feel the same way, honestly, about baseball seasons. I'm pretty excited at first. Mm. And then by, you know, the middle, I'm like, oh, hey, this is kind of losing the plot a little bit. I'm not as interested. And then mm-hmm. by the end, I'm just kind of ready for it to ramp up towards the postseason or whatever. If a team I care about in it, which is rare. But Frank, I know you actually go to the, to baseball games, right? <laughs> uh, I'd like to when I can. <laughs> yeah. 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 And have been for a while. I mean, we, we've talked behind the scenes. We've talked plenty over the years about, about your Yankees love and adventures and mm-hmm. just curious how it hits you as just the baseball but I, I would say the baseball was enormously authentic you know like the guy playing mm. david justice was like an actual like minor league ball player i love that david justice is a character in this yes and i just heard someone say uh just this week about how like it, oh it's about the elvis movie they, they refused to watch the elvis movie because they had said well the guy doesn't look like him it's just ridiculous when anyone tries to do this i won't be able to buy it and then also talked about the marilyn monroe movies anytime you use real people that are still living and then you have actors play them it's always 
doesn't work almost always in some real brain processing way for me. Mm-hmm. But here, I remember all these baseball players. I certainly remember Art Howe, who Philip Seymour Hoffman plays. I was like not distracted at all. Like uh, the, the verisimilitude filled felt really accurate. Mm-hmm. I was like, I buy these guys as baseball players. Even Chris Pratt, I was like, yeah, okay, sure. Why can't he be this guy? That's close enough to what I remember in my head. <laughs> I think it's really funny to think about this as like an emo sports movie because to me, like, and I was just thinking of the exact two movies, Frank, you just mentioned, Field of Dreams, which to me I think is the more emo film because it is so melodramatic and so over the top and overwrought. And then A League of Their Own may be, I don't know, like a ballad or something, something that's also kind of mm. emotional and personal and kind of expansive. This to me is like prog rock or like math music and not just because of the reliance on like statistics, but because this movie feels like Zodiac to me. It's just like yeah. process. It's a process movie. Yeah, that's why I love it. It's replete with commentator voiceover that's like the entire movie basically is like looking at these little bits of footage and hearing commentators so it just feels like it's about commentary like about Mm. baseball as this hyper mediated experience where you're you're like walking around the arena you're not even looking at anything you're just kind of absorbing what's essentially real life voiceover of what's going on, that it's so reliant on narration, a constant stream of narration. I mean, I'm thinking about how my father, who was really into baseball, used to just listen to games on the radio. Mm-hmm. And that was his exclusive kind of way into following a season. And the the fact that you can do that is bonkers given how long games are and my dad did too yeah it's weird because i do think the cinematography in this movie is pretty interesting and i'm particularly interested in the kind of recurrent haunted empty re-establishing shots of spaces where we see like the locker rooms the training facilities the field the are they called bleachers when it's not a high school like the the stadium i guess just totally emptied and without people and that there's something kind of like harrowing about that which feels appropriate because sports is like fucking sad like the relentlessness of devoting your life at the exclusion of all other pursuits and sociality to something that will almost certainly destroy your body and remove you from any community and put all of your futurity in the hands of people who really don't give a shit about you outside of what you can earn for them. It just seems extremely tragic in a way that the film doesn't exactly exploit, but seems pretty aware of. I think we might be thinking of the word emo in different ways. I'm talking about the, the type of emo that, grew almost directly out of a mix of kind of punk and post-punk and math rock and all that other kind of stuff, like that kind of emo, <laughs> uh, more than like whatever the, the My Chemical Romance or whatever the more modern version. Like, I can't hear that word now, and it means a very different thing than it meant. I'm a me Fugazi like. emo girl myself. Okay, okay, all right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, and that I don't certainly think it's in the Fugazi sense. And I think what honestly, you know, it's it's a, it's such a simple explanation for why. I love. Uh, I saw that you you added something in about the the music doing a lot of the work in this movie, and I think mm. that's absolutely true. And I also was like, man, this feels very Friday Night Lightsy in the music. And I was like, is this mm. explosions in the sky? And I was like, no, I would know that. But I looked it up, and my favorite part of the music was not written by the composer. He had just lifted a song wholeheartedly <laughs> from this band at the time, and that's the music that every time. He's kind of sad runs through the music. So it, are you guys familiar with Friday Night Lights, the TV series? Only that it exists. Yeah, yeah I've heard of it and I great hair. Wait, time out. <laughs> you guys have not seen any of it. No. no. Oh, my goodness. OK, watch uh, five episodes. 
Mm. Yeah. Big ass. I don't know. I've had this conversation with maybe maybe mm. two or three hundred people in my life. I've, I've seen Varsity Blues. I think I'm okay. No, you. If we ever got listener feedback directly, we would get a lot of feedback on this that would say, "Give it a chance, Veronica." Okay. Because I've had this. I mean, again, this is not a new conversation to me because everyone has that. My wife not a sports person in almost any way getting her to watch a tv show about football I, I didn't even try and then i didn't want to watch it someone kind of had to have this intervention with me that i'm having with you guys and they said watch friday night lights i was like dude it looks so stupid it's one of the best television shows ever made and i'm not being funny or i'm not doing a bit like it is fantastic it is also not about football just while money money ball's not about baseball i can't say enough good things about it, i promise <laughs> please please give it a chance Anyway, they use this music throughout to note or connotate a whole lot of stuff and feel a lot of feelings. So it just felt really familiar to that. Watching this movie made me realize I don't watch a lot of fictional products about sports. Mm-hmm. I was yeah. like, oh, yeah. is this like other baseball movies? And I was like, I know all of them, but I, I don't have connections to them. And I guess what mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious yeah. about, like, when filmmakers and creators think about representing these sports in some ways like mm-hmm. the choices that they make and the, and the choices that they don't make in mm-hmm. sort of making that representation happen because when you walk into a stadium to experience any sort of event sporting event but certainly baseball you have any number of phenomena you could focus on mm-hmm. and sort of i think the most exciting aspect of that is the ways you can deliberately frustrate your visual relationship with the televisual baseball, which most people know. Mm -hmm. Most people have this sense of like where the camera will be, Mm -hmm. where I should be watching. And when you're in the stadium, Mm -hmm. you can choose any number of endings and possibilities. So that must be said to the creators of these things too. Well, you could tell any story you want. It just seems that often when even liberated from the constraints of like where you can keep the camera, Mm -hmm. right? In, In televised baseball, it has to be in the camera wells. So often like the only sort of innovations we get are like close-ups or like more focuses on like these individual people. Here is Dennis Leary's sweaty face. Here is John mm-hmm. C. Riley's catcher's crouch. <laughs> There's a tension there because like we know the camera couldn't be there because that's where the baseball's going to be hit. Mm-hmm. But if the camera's going to be in an impossible place, I want to see an impossible result. I want to see something that we haven't seen before. And Oftentimes we don't get that. I think even in Moneyball, we don't get a lot of baseball, but the talk about baseball isn't showing us new ways to think about baseball Mm -hmm. or new ways to think about these stories, which I think is, again, like what that sports movie could mean and what this one ultimately is. It is really interesting how little this movie is about spectatorship in a way, or at least about like direct spectatorship. One of the more affecting moments, and this is the moment that makes me well up when I watch the film is when Jonah Hill's Peter Brandt is playing that footage for Billy Bean at the end of the film, the proper sort of end of the film, of this inexplicable home run. I think it's best to think of all home runs as inexplicable because (laughs) they're so magical, like in real life and in film. Mm. It's a fascinating sequence because he keeps pausing. Mm -hmm. It's almost like he's doing a film analysis class. Like, tell me what you think is happening Mm -hmm. here. No, that's not what's happening here. (laughs) This kind of like reveal that is enabled completely by like VHS technology, basically. Yeah. Oh, I love love that. Yeah. You know, you just can't do it without like pausing, rewinding, like slowing down frames, Mm -hmm. isolating a fragment of the footage. That's really interesting to me how much of the film is about 
watching in this mediated way, as opposed to what we normally get, I think, with a baseball movie in particular, which is a much more direct mm-hmm. to consumer kind <laughs> of uh, invocation of audience. Like, And sometimes that has a kind of particular melodramatic or historical freight, like in A League of Their Own, when the like black spectator catches the ball and like whips it back. And we have this kind of like momentary allusion to black women playing mm-hmm. baseball. Yeah, I don't know. There, it's yeah. it's one of the things that makes this a little more interesting to me amid the landscape of sports films in general. Though I do like enjoy, you know, a corny sports movie yeah. from time to time. Well, we haven't even gotten into the genre of little kids inexplicably being baseball players or whatever. Like, you know, there's a Gary Coleman movie. Rookie of the Year. Remember Rookie of the Year? Yeah, there was Rookie of the Year, but even yeah. before that, there was a Gary Coleman one where he's playing for, like, the Padres in the 80s. Probably. And they, that sounds right. I mean, it's really a thing that I watched a bunch as a kid. But anyway, I was going to say, Veronica, really quick, part of that scene, uh, which I love, too, that scene is doing so much more than most of the movie. Um, narratively, metaphorically, it's all this stuff. But it's also this really kind of interesting moment because throughout the movie, you watch many people try to change Billy Bean's mind about many things and not be successful in any way. He's a fairly stubborn guy, believes in his own convictions. This was the first time, at least that I was able to track, where someone figured out how to talk to him in his language. I mean, at the end, he's like, it's a metaphor. He's like, yeah, I get that it's a metaphor. Of like, sometimes you hit the home run, you didn't even realize it, and you thought you fucked up. But instead of doing that, Jonah Hill, one, talked to their relationship and how well he'd kind of studied and learned Billy Bean to be able to say, like, come here, come watch this video with me. He's like, I don't want to watch film. He makes him watch it and then he shows him this thing and, and you know, Billy Bean is the guy that hit the home run and didn't realize it. Like, he changed all of baseball and he thought he was a loser because they didn't win the World Series that year. Then after that, you know, they moves very quickly to Billy Bean not accepting the contract, you know, to make him the highest paid, you know, general manager in all of sports, stays with the team that he's on and realizes that the system does work. He wasn't wrong. So I thought that was a fascinating moment in the movie too, just, just, just because someone finally learned how to talk to him to convince him and also did it through VHS and baseball. That was an especially touching scene for me. And I should also say we haven't talked to, we haven't said anything about The Natural, which is a great baseball movie too. Never seen. I just haven't seen a bunch of them. Oh, you guys. Yeah. I prefer (laughs) watching baseball. That's like the, that's the boring realization. Like I just want to see what the camera's going to do there. uh, Most of the time. Well, I've got a little segue then. Uh Uh-oh. Because I do know that there is a filmmaker that you do enjoy like, watching uh, portray baseball on the screen. Is he in the other room? Is he coming and in? I'd love, like to bring out... <laughs> like the microphone in the Magnificent Ambersons, <laughs> like John Boys. Yes. yes, the perspective switch. We're off the rails tonight. Yeah. Have you seen the Fablemans, Veronica? No. Oh, okay, that last shot. Yeah, that was... Eli and Frank got it, because that last shot was a direct reference. I'll see myself out. <laughs> so my segue that also went off the rails... Frank, tell us why you love John Boyce, because that's originally what, what we wanted to talk about before all this. Mm. What Veronica alluded to watching with Fran earlier. I would just love to hear you guys' thoughts, because he's doing something completely different than anybody else in movies, I think. I definitely could listen to someone talk about him for hours, so we don't have hours, but I'd love to hear what, what you have to say about John Boyce and how he approaches stats that somehow translate into feelings it seems like better than Moneyball mm. was able to do narratively for you. I think so. I, I think Moneyball, the film... Whether or not we're going to talk about like Moneyball, the like theory in good or bad faith in the baseball world aside, like yeah, Moneyball separate pod, but would love to. Yeah, yes. right. But Moneyball, <laughs> the film, ultimately sees 
statistics as matter to be sort of mined for the baseball film. Yeah. Other numbers to crunch just like shots in order to sort of reach the same sort of narrative ends. Whereas I think what Boys is trying to accomplish through a lot of his stuff is to reorient our understanding of what those statistics actually are, not mean, but are, and how they reveal things about history that we were unaware of or unwilling to be aware of, and ultimately then problematize how we think about history itself, right? It's not just what the history is, but it's how we tell that history. Mm -hmm. And I think ultimately a movie like this conceives of statistics as just another way to move history forward in its same linear path. Whereas in Boys, especially in Captain Ahab and the history of the Seattle Mariners, we are challenged to return to a past in a different way to think about the future in a more interesting one. That's fascinating. It's pretty good. Yeah. They do good work over there. Yeah. My favorite piece probably to edit uh, in whatever year that was you wrote it. I will associate editing that piece with you with the pandemic probably for the rest of my life. Yeah, that's what it felt like. Yeah. Tell my grandchildren about it. <laughs> whatever you did in that piece, I, you know. I'm sorry to make you feel uncomfortable again. No, thank you. It was a Absolutely. magic act of its own. I would highly recommend people read it, not not because uh, of the traffic to the site, but just because it's a truly amazing piece of writing. We'll link it in the show notes. And he also did a, a subsequent sister piece uh, for for movie. Was it on John Boyce in general, or was it more? I think it was a, it was a little more more generally, especially that Dave Steve doc from this year. Yes, which Frank alerted me to, and then I promptly lost the next three nights of my of my life to watching a lot of baseball player I grew up watching and couldn't even remember existed until there was four hour documentary on him yeah. that I was then riveted by, even though nothing is happening, but showing me graphs and pictures and screens, just a fascinating approach to, to sports in my mind. These little like humanizing stories that I think sports writ large <laughs> is such a great resource for there's something really depressing about and like paradoxical about it to me that so much of the like human interest approach to sports documentary, we might say, even those little like micro pieces that they do around the Olympics, like mm. meet the Russian ice dancing team or something. Yeah. The Olympics do the worst version of it. Well, it's like they're just really humanizing these figures that you see that the profession dehumanizes completely mm -hmm. and the tension there is tragic. And you do see it in Moneyball, like this sort of ongoing bit about the guy getting traded or the possibility of getting cut. And the fact that these are like men who may or may not go home to their wives who are just like opening bills on a dining room yeah. table at yeah, night yeah, yeah. or something. Yeah. I mean, it's really, really sad yeah and i think this film captures the sadness of all that really well the even the empty shot like brad pitt again is never celebrating anything except for that home run on the 20th game where i think it cuts to real footage it was a little hard for me to tell whenever it gets distance from the players i think it's using the real footage from the real mm -hmm. thing yeah i'm really curious about to what extent moneyball the film as it exists in the cultural consciousness for people who don't know a lot about baseball or about moneyball the the, the sort of economic theory normalizes the sense of, well, some baseball teams are small market teams, and so mm -hmm. they don't have to pay their players as much, or they can't, mm -hmm. when most of the time, especially in a post-streaming rights world, any baseball ownership has the ability to do that. Mm -hmm. But like the Tampa Bay Rays can point to a film like Moneyball and what it represents and be like, mm -hmm. no, no, we can't compete with like the big market teams. Mm -hmm. That's why we trade our guys away and exploit minor leaguers. 
I'm not putting that on Bennett Miller in this film, but I'm oh, curious no. <laughs> about the fallout of it culturally yeah. as this sort of like normalization. I would say it's changed all. I mean, as a, as a sports fan, sports was very, very different to me as a kid. Mm. And I think the dividing line is when sabermetrics analytics, all this stuff kind of came into, be, mm. into being. And now it's, you know, infiltrated into like the gambling stuff. Too. I mean, like metrics and data and analytics is everything. And to me, as much as I can geek out over certain stuff like that, it does suck all of the romance out of the sport and, and the, the beautiful, like, any given Sunday, to mm. switch my sports metaphors there, that you just, you don't know what's going to happen in a sports game, and that's part of the thrill of watching it. I 92% watch sports for the backstories and the psychologies and all the other stuff going on. That is by far the most fascinating. I mean, I love when they, just recently in the last couple of years, they started doing a thing where they don't leave the coverage while they go to commercial. They do this weird split-screen thing. Mm. I love watching how players look during timeouts and in, in mm-hmm. baseball there's not timeouts but anything that reminds me of these are human beings that can do an extraordinary thing at an extraordinary level but that the, their psychology is for the most part far different than any of ours will ever be but also that yeah like they have these full lives and, and that you know obviously social media is much better at showing us all that too for better or for worse it's just i don't love that that analytics like this have taken over all of sports it's not i like magic better hmm. I don't know, Frank, do you have any any thought on that? Um, ultimately, this film, right, what does is, what is Brad Pitt say in it is like, it all has to mean something. And I think the challenge of John Boy's, and I think what we're sort of circling here is that we have all of it, and it doesn't mean anything. And that can be just as sad and joyful as it needs to be. Um, and it's only when we break with the meaning that we can sort of enjoy whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. Solved that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, last call. <laughs> Typically, we end every episode by asking our guests to share the last thing they watched recently and a quick staff recommendation. Frank, I'd love to hear what's the last thing you watched recently. It's the dead of winter. It's been the great girls rewatch for me. So I'm I'm on season four. (laughs) That's literally the last thing my eyes saw before Moneyball. We're just in the Iowa workshop and we're we're making all kinds of terrible decisions. I don't know what we're talking about. What is that? (laughs) We are talking about HBO's Girls. <laughs> yeah, we are. And we're, Girl. let's talk about it for at least two minutes. No, yes, I absolutely. No, have I know to that. talk about this. I, was throw, I thought there was some new show called The Great Girls, and I was like, what's happening right <laughs> now? Golden Girls. I know, yeah, I can talk girls. Let's do it. I love girls. I am also rewatching Girls, and I what? also just oh. went through the Iowa season. Spinoff pod. I mean, I would love to do like 60 hours on Girls. Every minute of Girls. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Every girl, every single girl. <laughs> And Adam Driver. How totally, because what was that? It's 2015, I think, Mm -hmm. the Iowa season. That is the most, like, predictive television I think I've ever seen. It really is. Like, in terms of narrative TV. I mean, the workshops treatment of, like, triggers and identity politics and anxiety about performing a marginal kind of persona for a creative output. I mean, everything about it to me is so <laughs> Twitter right now. Yeah. It is yeah. genius. Genius. I want to hear the two MFAs talk about it. Yes. Are we allowed to do this without Fran? Yeah. Fran's always around. Okay. <laughs> I know. She, grad school's her whole thing. Yeah. Like her whole bit. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it's really incisive. I love that show. Well, and the show really benefits when it tips into like the satire mode, I feel like, and Mm -hmm. especially for that thread. And I like the way that it can vary the mood, right? Sometimes it is this very sort of honest depiction of life. And sometimes it's like, oh, no, no, this is my essay on this 
topic. Mm -hmm. And she does a really good job with that. Yeah, it's been one of the like great sort of joys of my TV consumption life Mm. in the past 10 years of Mm. tracking how I respond to the show Girls differently Mm. at my age now versus when it was on television originally. Well, that sounds like an essay. (laughs) And becoming like more aware of the show's critique of its own characters and it doesn't get enough credit for how smart it is, I think. That's right. Okay, staff recommendation. What should we be watching? You tell us. I know there's a better way to navigate the world than like what's leaving streaming, but in the absence of like that, I've been working through some Sturgis off of the Criterion channel and I will say the Palm Beach story. Oh, the Palm Beach story. Just a real like stand up and cheer moment. Like I didn't know they could do that in movies and they did. So if you haven't seen it, yeah. I haven't oh, seen it. Oh, oh yeah, okay. yeah. Okay, what like mood should one be in to best sort of throw this on? Human. Come on. <laughs> More specific, please. <laughs> I mean, it's ideal for the winter only because it immediately thaws you and then like makes it even hotter. It's such a like hot feeling. It's like really embracing all the extravagances of movie making and also satirizing them at the same time. It's joyful, but then it'll turn on a dime and be sad. Yeah. Florida, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Love that. Frank, you know Florida well, right? I keep running away from it, Chad. One of these days I'll stop running to it. I love that. I want to tack on one like last mini shot to the last call, which is what would your walk-on music be, Frank? That's a great question. Mm. I think the secret is that it would change. You know, you'd have to vary it. In this moment, I I would make them get to the chorus of Freedom 90. Amazing. I would make the sound engineer get to the, yeah. Wow. While I, while I hit a buck 30 and bat in the ninth spot, that's what I would do. Thank you. Light hitting shortstop at 6-2, right? Felicity. Well, that's how we'll be introducing you the next time you come on the show. There's the intro. Thank you. I'm going to put it in the audio just in case Eli wants to do anything with it. I'm going to read the opening paragraph of Frank's essay on the Seattle Mariners that describes his his limited career as a baseball player. That's true. And I'm just going to have fun reading it because it's a fun paragraph to read. So it says, in 2003, I am dragging my cleat feet around in outfield dirt. I am forming the arc of a Frank-sized U, the last symbol in the sentence I am making on a Little League baseball field. Unlike tracking fly balls or pulling a hit down the left field line, Dirt drawing has always come naturally to me. Later, on the ride home, I will ask my dad to play Lubega's Mambo Mambo, the compact disc that produced Mambo Number no. 5. I'll stare out the window and fantasize about dancing and singing Mambo Number no. 5. In the fantasy, I spin extravagantly. In the fantasy, I wear a fun hat. Did you know I am not made for competitive athletics? I fantasize about the fantasy because right now in 2003, I am a piece of the peculiarly communal sadness Readily available, but not exclusive to youth sports. Nothing matters except everything matters. We can't do the thing, but we do know we can't do it. Right now, I'm carving language into the field because our pitcher can't throw a strike and there's no one left on the bench to pitch, so the opposing Little League team is effectively walking itself to victory. Our pitcher, a boy I remember with the eyes the color of Glacier Freeze Gatorade, runs every time he throws the ball. Up and out, down and in, just a little high. Another walk, another run, grimace. It is hard to try and come up short. It is hard to watch when you cannot help. It's so great. And I mean, that's precisely, Chad, when you were saying like that you're never really sure what's going to happen and that's the thrill of it. I mean, to me, that's always maybe my surprising answer to people about why I do not enjoy sports very much. It's not because 
I think they're so meaningless, but actually they're so obviously replete with meaning and yet you have no control over what's happening. And that just seems to be an absolutely painful entertainment source, you know, and uh, (laughs) that's why all I've ever known are men who are inconsolable or enraged for the rest of the day when things don't go their way. You know, it's like so painful. Beautiful, Frank. Thanks for reading it, Chad. It's all based on reality, baby. Like this movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Did you know Todd Field co-invented Big League Chew? What? He did. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I think you can tell. I can tell you that that is the coolest fucking thing you could put in your mouth when you're 11 years old and playing baseball. That's true. Put you like I'm chewing tobacco, but it's gum. And somehow sunflower seeds, whatever that is, no. You got to do the big league chew. The year they banned chewing tobacco from baseball, even though I've never chewed tobacco in my life, baseball was dead to me. A lot of like covert chaw in this movie. A lot of chaw. He's clearly doing it, but they're also clearly aware that they have to sanitize it. Yeah, because we have not related anything to tar yet. So boom, there's your tar, Veronica. (laughs) Todd Field is the co-inventor of big league chew. Really more Franz tar than my tar, but I appreciate that. Big league tar, baby. So what did Joanna Hogg invent? Oh, whoa. (laughs) Woof. (laughs) Frank, what a total pleasure to have you back on the pod. This was amazing. Thank you so much, guys. This was so lovely, really. Yeah. And uh, just really, really quick, besides the wonderful essays you contribute to Brightwall Dark Room, anywhere else we can find you online you want to point to? Oh, around Letterboxd and Twitter, if it has to happen. Um, and there's going to be something something about Martin McDonough and the Banshees of Inisherin in the Los Angeles Review of Books. Oh, my month. goodness. Yeah. What? Cool. So it won't be nice but it will be fun that is a big reveal for me that's amazing amazing well we'll look for your hit piece yes. hit space piece yeah <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> and yeah i'm just honestly a, a treat every time frank thank you so much sincerely same back at y'all to read this month's issue uh all about sports visit us at brightwalldarkroom.com you can also find us on twitter at bwdr and also a separate podcast one the bwdr podcast or subscribe to our newsletter for the latest updates on every issue. You can subscribe, share, rate, review. Uh, we would love if you did that for the podcast. And you can also visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash brightwalldarkroom. Our theme music is composed by Chad Perman. This podcast is produced and edited by Eli Sands. Bye. It's out of here. Oh, it's pretty good. This is just how it's going to be for the next two hours, huh? (laughs) Veronica, you finally get your dream sports podcast. This is my dream. Yeah, you can finally hear talking sports with some dudes. I went to Michigan State. It's not my first time at the rodeo. (laughs) (laughs) Ah. All right, let's get into some sabermetrics. Okay.